Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is the last day of January, the 31st of January, 2024. And today we are continuing our discussion and description and analysis of Dr. Laura Snyder's 16-part series on various aspects of citizenship taxation. This is working paper number seven, which obviously following six, continues the discussion of many things, including how citizenship taxation factors into the law of equal protection. So more on that, but first, bringing Laura and Karen into the conversation. So what's happening, Karen? How are things in Australia? Oh, it's late in Australia, John. Ah, the podcast. Laura, what? <laughs> What's happening in France? Oh, I did get through January. We can get through February, get to spring. Oh, God, Laura, come on, come on. French weather is supposed to be good. All right. In any case, Karen, you led the discussion for number six. Do you want to continue with our topic today, things that are inherently suspect? Sure, John, why not? So so last time we, we talked about how how the system singles out people based on their country of origin. And we're going to explore that a little more today. So, Laura, why does it matter if a law discriminates based on country of origin? Well, the Supreme Court's decided on multiple occasions that a law that discriminates on the basis of nationality or country of origin is subject to strict scrutiny under the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. And what that means is that it's probably going not going to be considered constitutional. The only way it would be is if the government, has, which has the burden, can demonstrate that the law is narrowly or suitably tailored to serve a compelling governmental interest. So it's a very heavy burden that the government has and pretty much in practically every case that there's found to be discrimination on the basis of country or origin or nationality, the law will be found to be unconstitutional. Laura, can I, can I ask you to sort of bring that down to a very, very specific example so that people can better understand that? So in the context of what we're talking about, the extraterritorial regulatory tax regime, sort of in people talk, why why does this potentially raise equal protection concerns? Well, okay, I, I can't tell if you want an explanation for why it raises equal protection concerns or whether you want a specific example. The reason well, why it raises equal protection concerns is well, I can I can quote to you from a case that was uh, decided in 1985, City of Claiborne, the Claiborne Living Center. And the court said that Factors such as national origin or race or alienage are so seldom relevant to the achievement of any legitimate state interest that laws grounded in such considerations are deemed to reflect prejudice and antipathy. It's a, they're seen as a view that those in the burdened class are not as worthy or deserving as others. And for these reasons, because such discrimination is unlikely to soon be rectified by legislative means, these laws are subjected to strict scrutiny and will be sustained only if they are suitably tailored to serve a compelling state interest. Okay. So if to put that in other terms, 
basically what you're saying when you allow discrimination based on race, nationality, country of origin, you are basically saying that someone should be subjected to worse treatment for reasons that have they have absolutely no responsibility for. You're not responsible for your nationality, your country of origin. You didn't do anything to deserve that type of treatment. And and in the, and to go further with that, because of laws like this, you probably are being limited in how you can live your life. You know, the the examples that the court struck down were when there were laws that held that people of a certain nationality were not allowed to own property in a certain state. And that that was struck down. There were laws that said, you know, you, you had to have been you had to be a citizen or you have to have lived in the country for at least 15 years in order to receive a certain type of welfare payment. The, the idea here is is that, you know, you shouldn't you didn't do anything to deserve to be treated that way. There's no reason to suspect that you committed some crime for or did some bad thing that you should be punished for and you know it's it's not right to to treat people in this unfair way what was going on in city of Claiborne? well Claiborne is an interesting that i the quote from the case is very interesting which is why i called it out what you had in that case was you had a it was about a mental retardation and whether that should be considered an inherently suspect classification like race, alienage, country of origin. And the court basically said no, that that that's classifying persons for that purpose, we will not elevate to the to strict scrutiny. And so they differentiated it from national origin, alienage, race. Okay. But can I ask you though, what precisely in City of Claiborne? Was was the individual being excluded from because of nationality or alien? What was going on there was they were it was they were trying to get a permit to build facility for they used the term mentally retarded people at that time, and so there was it was basically a fight over whether or not city could decline to give a permit for that type of facility just because they didn't want that type. Right, but the way that the law was written was that the permit would be declined to people based on alienage. This it was all based on the mental the mental re- retardation, as they called it then, and the the court is is not is distinguishing that from national origin. But national origin, as I understand it, Laura was not part of this particular case. That's right. That's right. I I felt I singled out that language because to me it's a it's where the court did the best job of explaining why it's wrong to right. discriminate okay. on national origin. But I can give you examples of cases where sure, yeah, national origin do. was at issue. Yeah, please do. Okay. So you have you have Oyama v. California. The court struck down a statute preserving presuming that transfers of real property from persons ineligible for citizenship because of their nationality, in this case, they were Japanese, to their U.S. citizen children were attempts to circumvent the state's alien land law rather than legitimate gifts. The court stated that the state may not discriminate based on a parent's country of origin absent compelling justification. You have Hernandez v. Texas. 
the court held that exclusion of otherwise eligible persons from jury service solely because of their ancestry or national origin is discrimination prohibited by the 14th Amendment. I talk okay, about- so, so basically you're saying that national origin, you can't discriminate based on national origin. Let's, let's make this really explicit here. How does the U.S. extraterritorial tax system discriminate based on national origin? Well, it's still like nationality. Nas- Sorry? No, all citizens are subject to it, right? Well, yes, all citizens and residents. But the if you look at what it really means, well, when you say all citizens are subject to it, if you're talking about people who live in the United States, it doesn't mean that much because all residents are also subject to it regardless of their citizenship. So saying citizens are subject to it really has meaning and effect once you're outside of the borders of the United States. And so once you're outside of the borders, then then what is happening is that the U.S. law is targeting people based on their nationality for treatment that is worse than how they treat people of other nationalities. People who of other nationalities outside the United States aren't subject to these to these debilitating laws. So it's better to be a non-resident alien than a non-resident citizen. Very definitely. And and this is seen in the number of people that are renouncing citizenship. They understand that, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why it's better. Okay. Okay. So assuming that, I mean, clearly we have, not only do we have a law that impacts people outside the United States based on citizenship or nationality, in in effect, as you point out, it really has practical meaning and effect only for people who live outside of the United States. But the you know the regulation, in its expressed terms, singles out citizens, right? Well, yeah, the, yes, the the regulation, yes, talks about yes, citizens exactly. So really, we have at least the beginning of an argument here based on not only the effect of the law, but on the express terms of the law, right? It is expressly in the terms of the law, yes. In the regulation, it is there. Okay, all right. If so- you took, look at it this way. If you took out the word citizen from the applicable regulation, the only people that would be affected by it are people who live outside the United States. Right. But we also have the word citizen. And so we have it, we have it arguably in two ways, right? Both in terms of what it says and in terms of what it means. Yes. Okay. Okay. So if, if we go with your, your, your argument that, which we do, right? That the extraterritorial tax system is discriminating against, uh, between people who live outside the East, United States is discriminating based on their nationality, whether they're U.S. citizens or not. Does it, that's, that doesn't mean that it can't be done. It can be done if there's a compelling governmental interest, right? Well, there, there has, it has to be narrowly tailored to serve a compelling governmental interest. So you've got to meet those two criteria. You have to have okay. a compelling governmental interest, and whatever the rule is, it has to be tailored to actually meet that interest. Okay, so is there a compelling governmental interest? There's definitely not a compelling governmental interest. So, Go ahead. we of course would disagree. Well, 
You tell me what is the compelling governmental interest. Well, I, I'm totally 100 on your side, Laura. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll I'll, I'll 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 get into it a little bit more. First of all, you have to distinguish a compelling governmental interest from all of the reasons people have offered and continue to offer and continue to make up as to why Americans living overseas should accept this situation. Those are two very different things. And the United States does not have a compelling governmental interest in taxing us because we are members of a community. That's one of the reasons that, you know, that are given that we're members of American community. There is no compelling, that's not a compelling governmental interest. There's no compelling governmental interest in taxing us because it is, as some have argued, administratively convenient, which it is not, by the way. It absolutely is not. But, you know, those are not, those are not compelling governmental interests. Those are just reasons people have made up to try and make us accept the situation, try and make us feel like we should accept it. Two very different things. So, Laura. I, yeah. All right. Can I, I'm sorry. I, I want to stop here and just ask you a question. In our last podcast, in the previous paper, I think we were talking about the general presumption that this legislation will be upheld on a rational basis standard usually, right? You know, we talk about when it comes to tax and economic regulations, mostly. We talked talked about the, about, you know, that standard. Now, you know, in number paper number six, I argue why I don't think we would even meet the rational basis. And I explain why I think that is the case. And that's what we talked about in the previous part. But assuming the existence of the rat, assuming what, assuming that most tax legislation comes with a presumption of constitutionality, you would agree with that, right? Most tax yeah. legislation. Most legislation comes with a presum- presumption of constitutionality. Okay. So what you're saying here is it's the injection of the taxation based on and only on nationality that moves this out of rational basis and into something that's inherently suspect. Is that correct? Yes, because the court's definition for what should qualify as being inherently suspect is the list of, of criteria is quite short. And but one of those criteria is does it discriminate on the basis of nationality or country of, or of origin? Okay. May I ask you this? And the reason I, I'm pushing at this a little bit is because, you know, as, as you may know, in Canada, we have a bad lawsuit challenging basically the government law implementing a fact in Canada. And part of the argument really was an equal protection argument, an equal protection based argument. And, you know, precisely because, you know, the thing uh, targeted people based on you know, based on citizenship. And interestingly, the first case ever decided by the Supreme Court of Canada on the equal protection, quality rights, what they call it here, case, was was a differentiation based on citizenship, interestingly. And it was, in this case, it was based on a, a requirement that to be a lawyer, that if you were not a Canadian citizen or a British subject or something or other, that you could not be a lawyer, right? So the court ruled in that case that citizenship was a ground, okay, you know, basically for trouble. And it was hard for the government to justify that. I mean, basically, that's what they're saying. All right. 
Now, let's fast forward to 2024 with the Federal Court of Canada. You know, give very short shrift to that argument in the context of taxation, just saying, well, you know, sure, this may differentiate based on citizenship, but it's not discriminatory, essentially because, you know, it's just a tax law, right? Now, obviously, I don't like that kind of decision, and I don't think it was particularly well-reasoned. But what I want to ask you is this, that, you know, we move this stuff into the area of taxation, right? and this is not a situation of, you know, somebody being denied a permit or something like that. And I emphasize again that I agree with you, but I, I want to push on this a little bit because where I see this going is the government and the tax academic community probably taking the position that, well, it's taxation, so anything goes. In other words, a lot of people will, will, will have and will do that. Yes. So what, what is the, what is the best way to counter that, you know, obvious nonsense, right? You know, I don't know that I know the best way. What I can say is under that reasoning, you can channel any rights violation through the tax code and you should be fine with it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right on that. I would also say that to me, this is why this discussion of all these issues has to be moved out of the realm of tax and into the realm of constitutional and human rights and social justice, because that's what's really going on here. And if you wait for the tax people, if you wait for the people who are only trained in tax, who have no training, expertise, or even perception of constitutional rights, human rights, and social justice. If you wait for the for the Joint Committee on Taxation to say there's a problem with these laws, you're going to be waiting forever. Oh, I, I think you're totally. I think you're totally right. It's a hundred percent right. And you know, the more I, you know, read this stuff coming out of the out of the uh, tax community, and particularly the tax academic community. You know, I think that they have created a world that is frankly devoid of anything that, that does not allow anything to do with human rights, justice, fairness into it at all. I mean, it seems to me it's just about, you know, revenue raising and how to best, you know, expand the country's tax base. I mean, I, fi- I find it absolutely shocking. So, you know, I sent you a tweet last night. I mean, I was really interested to see this discussion at Leeds University on next week, in fact, February the 6th, where there's basically a lecture, which I interpret to be beginning the discussion of the linkage between taxation and human rights. So, I mean, I think that's, that's definitely a step forward. How do, you, how do you do this, right? I mean, the problem, it seems to me, is that governments turn to tax academics, tax professionals, essentially to ask what should be done, right? So isn't part of the problem here, how do you get the governments to stop paying attention to the tax academics, the people at Treasury, et cetera? Yes. I mean, yes. And, and, and you know, how do you, is the next question then, how do you do that? But, yeah. Well, I, part I, of the I, answer is your articles, you know, are, are playing a very significant role. 
Well, that, that's like the answer. I would hope so. But, but like I said, this is why I think discussion has to be moved out of, out of being a discussion about tax and, and into a discussion about constitutional rights, human rights, and social justice. And this means that the people who are, who have, have an expertise and an influence on those topics, that's whose attention we need. That's whose interest we need in, in these topics rather than, you know, like I said, the joint committee on taxation, who's never going to help. I, I, I think you're absolutely right on that. And that's why, you know, to repeat why the work of C, your work, et cetera, why it's, I think, I think very, very important. I mean, I have come to see over the years that tax codes are the fundamental organizing principle of society. Uh, tax codes and tax treaties are the fundamental drivers of a great deal of injustice in this world. I mean, if you look at the standard OECD tax treaty, for example, I mean, we complain about citizenship taxation. Imagine that you're a developing country that has been, you know, essentially deprived of the opportunity to tax profits earned in your own country, right? I mean, that's what the whole pillar two thing is about. I think a lot of people have this misconception that taxation is about revenue. And in particular, they'll have this conception that federal taxation is about revenue. But if you look, and, and I won't even get into a, a discussion about modern monetary theory because I'm sure there's a lot of people who would not, who don't agree with that. But even if you don't agree with modern monetary theory, if you look at many, many federal taxes that have been adopted, it's clear, you know, and the, and the legislators who adopt them are clear at the time of the adoption that the, they're not about revenue. They're about in either in dissuading a certain behavior or encouraging a certain behavior and that's exactly what's happening and, and redistribution of wealth would be another one certainly if you're not at the federal level for sure yes and redistribution of wealth but that's revenue related that's revenue related and my my point here is is there's a lot of taxes that have been adopted where the any revenue that they collected was incidental they weren't even intended to collect revenue for example, you know, the very high marginal tax rates that you saw in the mid 20th century, their, their purpose was not to, to tax those high salaries. Their purpose was to discourage the payment of those high salaries. And they worked there. They, you know, there was not that much at those high marginal tax rates that was ultimately collected. And no one said that those taxes were a failure. They did their job. And so I think you also have to understand if you look at the history of, of these nationality based taxes, you look at their history, you see quite clearly that their purpose also has never been to collect revenue. Their purpose has been to discourage people from living outside the United States and to punish them when they do. And you can see that time after time in the statements that legislators have made over the past hundred years. And, you know, that's, you can see express you know precise quotes to that effect in these papers that we're talking about. so isn't the argument that the inherently suspect equal protection argument so so this gets raised and say well you know this nationality-based taxation is inherently suspect therefore unconstitutional as a violation whatever the, you know the equal protection principles etc and now we turn to you, government, to justify this. And 
be clear unequivocal evidence over the years of the purpose of these laws as it's simply going to punish people who live outside the United States or to prevent them from leaving the United States. Is that the argument? To discourage them from leaving and to and to punish them once they do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if that's the purpose, not only is it an improper purpose, but the United States government does not have a compelling interest in punishing its citizens who live outside the United States or discouraging them from leaving. Is that the argument? I would go further than that. The United, though leaving one's country is a human right, the the United States can't possibly have a compelling governmental interest in preventing someone or discouraging someone from exercising a human right. Are you sure about that? Okay, John, tell me why I'm wrong then. No, I'm not saying you're wrong. You know, I'm just trying to slice and dice this a little bit. My understanding of the the U.S. conception of rights is that even if they sign an international instrument, the right extends only to the U.S. view of the right, right? You know, which is always more limited. You're, you're, whether, whether you can enforce the right in a court is a different question from whether the United States has a compelling interest in stopping you from exercising the right. Those are, those are two different questions. Right. So how does the U.S. government argue that you have a compelling interest in punishing Americans abroad or, you know, discouraging them from leaving? You tell what me. What would be their argument? How would, they, how would they argue that? Well, if you frame that question that way, I have no idea. How can you possibly? See, I think they, go, they argue it because they've got a an unrealistic view of who these Americans are who are living outside of the U.S. They think of Eduardo Saverin, not Laura Snyder. Well, I would say right. even he has the right to live outside the United States. He Absolutely. He has the right to live outside the U.S. But, but the U.S. is looking at it and saying, oh, but he's doing it just to avoid paying U.S. taxes, which is clearly not true. But To be a compelling interest, right? I think that's the point that Karen's making here, right? So so how do other countries do this? Other countries apply a departure tax at the time a person leaves the country, regardless of their citizenship. And what you and so and the way that departure tax is quite different from the U.S. exit tax in that the U.S. exit tax will tax the value of a person's home their pension, their small business, whereas most other countries' departure taxes will apply to corporate, to, you know, corporate stock, but it won't tax the value of a person's home, the value of their pension, the value of their small business. Those will be exempted from the application of the tax. So, you know, it's, this is not, this is not uncharted territory. Other countries have figured out a way to handle this and not violate people's human rights. But for the U.S. residence tax, the difference, of course, obviously, we know is that other countries have residence taxation. The U.S. has citizenship taxation. Of course, what's, what's clearly uncharted territory for the United States is the concept that residence taxation even exists. Okay. If you buy into the idea of citizenship taxation, what necessarily follows from that? 
is what I would call the compounding effect of injustice, right? Because not only are is it unjust for Americans abroad to be, you know, taxed if they move, move permanently outside the United States, but the compounding effect of it would be the way their U.S. exit tax works is it basically confiscates assets that they acquired after leaving the United States, right? Yeah. Right. But but let's come back. Let's come back to this because I mean, let's you know. We imagine that this gets before a court, and all of a sudden, it, you know, somebody says to the U.S. government, "Well, government, uh, yeah, you know, this is definitely nationality based. So, uh, what's your compelling interest in harassing U.S. citizens abroad and trying to uh, discourage them from leaving the country?" What, what did I mean? This is what I, is interesting. What are they going to say? Well, yeah. So if they say it's preventing tax abuse by wealthy individuals, then they have not done a very good job of tailoring the these provisions so that that's what they do. Yeah. Okay. I think that's right. So it's not care it's not carefully tailored. That's part of the test, right? Laura, it has to be carefully tailored. It has to be at the at first they used the terminology suitably tailored, but now the terminology is narrowly tailored. Narrowly tailored. Well, I mean, narrow, narrow anything is the antithesis of the U.S. tax code, isn't it? Right, and and you know, the exit tax. When did they put that two million dollar threshold in? Twenty years ago? Uh, I think it was nice. It was certainly there in two thousand and four. Yeah. So okay. So if I had two million dollars in two thousand four, I'd be reasonably wealthy. If I had $2 million now, I'm a homeowner, right? <laughs> well, right. The, the, what, what, I, what you'll see in, in what I've published is if you look at the average value of a home in a major urban area like Toronto, Paris, London, Sydney. You, are, you are Sydney, you are easily looking at homes that are over a million dollars, if not approaching $2 million of the average price of a home. In those places, yeah. right? Um, yeah. So you know, to say that oh, people who are subject to the exit tax are wealthy, necessarily wealthy people, is crazy. They these people live in. Why do you live in a major urban area? Because that's where the job opportunities are. Yeah, and Look, it's not. It's not. You know, you're not living there because you know, like, it, you're not living on a on a beach somewhere having a vacation every day. You live in right, and so part of my point is that that two million dollars was never indexed, and so it, inflation is making that less and less narrowly tailored as we go on. Yeah, and and add to that, you know, that's you're also going to probably have other assets that are going to, you know, your pension or whatever it is that's going to easily put you over two million dollars. Yeah, if if you're near retirement. You've gotten to the point where you've paid off your mortgage and you have enough retirement savings to to you know comp to make sure that you can be you know supported in your retirement. Yeah, you you probably all up have at least two million dollars. And and to go back to John's point, you're you're probably looking at someone who's lived outside the United States for a long time. They're not the the you know Edward so what's his name. Sovereign, you know, who left, yeah. yeah. 
you're, you're most of these people, they've lived outside the United States for a long time. So all of these assets that they've accumulated, they've accumulated outside the United States. And right. so if, if the purpose of these taxes are to stop people from taking their wealth outside the United States, well, that's not at all what's happening in this case. No. And in fact, your non-U.S. pension is, or retirement savings account is treated much worse than your U.S. retirement savings. Wow. That, that's absolutely right. And that is one of the most shocking manifestations of this. Yeah, and how do you get a non-U.S. retirement savings account? Well, in most countries, you can't just move over there and deposit a million dollars in your retirement savings right away. No, that's exactly right. The, you know, they reflect contributions made over a very long period of residence and employment in that country. Mm-hmm. Always. Yeah. Let me just go back to this question, though, Laura. I know you think this is a crazy question. But I'm, I'm really interested in your response and perhaps getting you to respond more completely. I am not convinced that the government would not offer a human rights violation as a compelling interest. I'm not convinced of that at all. That the, the United States would say it's their compelling interest to violate the rights of their citizens that leave the country? Maybe. I don't see a logical problem with that. The the courts have given wrong decisions many times. Dred Scott, Plessy v. Ferguson. There's no guarantee that a court wouldn't give the wrong decision. No, I, I agree with you on that. I mean, you know, we can't count on courts, you know, or any body anywhere, anything for any kind of justice on this. But how do you respond to the argument? Well, it may violate human rights, but in this case, because of the times, because of economic uncertainty, because of erosions of tax bases worldwide, et cetera, the you know, U.S. citizens are our tax base, and we have a compelling interest in protecting that, irrespective of anything else. Well, I think what there's about a, the violation of the sovereignty of the countries where these people are living. There's that too. Okay, first of all, tax base, very little tax is collected from overseas Americans. It's like point less than 1% of all tax, individual tax revenue. We have a chart in what we published that shows exactly what it's been over the past 10 or 11 years. It's a minuscule, like, you know, less, less than 1% of total government spending. This is not about revenue. This is not about being part of the tax base, it is not about collecting revenue. There is nothing, no evidence to suggest that it is. So that's a ridiculous argument. Uh, obviously, people will make it all the time, well, but it I, is a ridiculous I'm argument. Sure, yeah, because what if they respond by saying, well, that may be true now, but you know, if we get an exodus of people from the United States because of deteriorating conditions here or something, which actually you know, appears to be going on, that might not be true down the road. We absolutely need to nip this in the butt. Hey, it's pretty hard. It's, it's you know, it's pretty hard to get residency in another country. A lot of people that want to leave are not going to be able to leave. But that's not even the most important point. It's probably the least important point. Why is it that people don't owe much in U.S. tax? It's because of the foreign earned income exclusion. It's because of the foreign tax credit. 
there are reasons why people don't know that much. And, and, you know, presumably that will be the case when, when however many people you think are going to leave. But why do you want, why do you think you have the right to, to, to claim people who are living and working in other countries as part of your tax base? Why do you have the right to, why do you even imagine you have the right to do that just because of their nationality? Well, I agree with you completely. At point, but but I, John, I mean, at a certain point, John, at a certain point, what you're basically saying and what is is happening today, you know, not in front of a court, but in public discourse, what is happening today is you can, they can throw out any argument to support what's happening and you can come back and you can explain why that argument's wrong. And what's going to happen? They're just going to come up with another argument. And you'll explain why that's not right. And they'll come up with another argument. And, you know, can this go on forever? Apparently so. No, it will not go on forever. Sooner or later, all of these things come to an end. I mean, the only thing we're betting on is time. I I mean, I agree with you completely in everything that you're saying. You know, I'm just kind of making the point that their view of the world is so fundamentally different. It is so fundamentally different that I think the part of the key here is to find a common talking point. And you know, as we, sorry. but John, if if they if they have it in their head, you know, overseas Americans should be taxed the way they are taxed, and there's nothing anyone's going to do or say to change my mind about that. Well, which I think is what's going on, to be honest, because you, because you can say thing after thing after thing. They don't care. Doesn't matter. They'll just pull another reason out of their hat. Correct. That's what, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that's what they're going to try to do. And that's why it's important to, to understand the structure of these arguments. I mean, maybe, maybe part of the answer. I mean, let me ask you this. I mean, do you think that what do you think the prognosis would be for just a straight? CBT lawsuit arguing that it violates equal protection, mostly for the reasons that you're giving. Oh, there's a lot of arguments you would have to put. And, and, you know, if you look at the paper, Ms. and Truths, there, it doesn't just talk about equal protection. There is also other reasons why this system violates the, the 14th Amendment. There's the question of second class citizenship. There's the question of animus. You can't have laws that, that are conceived in animus which I, I think there's a really compelling case for that, which I presume we'll talk about in yeah. a, a next podcast. So, you know, you don't, you don't go into court with just one argument. You go in with all of them. But on the equal protection argument, narrowly, leaving aside the other ones. I think that if people are in acting in good faith, this is a no-brainer. But if you've got people that are not acting in good faith, then forget it. You know, it will be fascinating when the decision in Moore comes down, whether there's any reference in anyone from any of the judges to the problems of Americans abroad or even to individuals. There won't be. Sorry? I don't think there will be. So you think that the decision will ignore the interests of the vast majority of people affected by the law? Yeah, I mean, for sure, people living overseas will, it'll be as if they don't even exist. I'm sure when you read whatever opinion they come out with. It's already as if they don't exist. (laughs) Yes, exactly. 
and whether or not it'll actually, the decision will make a distinction between individuals and corporations. Neither of the parties made that distinction. So, you know, what are the chances of the court doing it? I, I, I think that they're low. I think they'll, they'll be low, but I think it'll be interesting. You know, to see if there is any reference or not. I mean, part of the thing is this, right? I mean, the judges obviously have their own views of what kind of result they want. And, you know, at least in the cases of Thomas Alito and I think Gorsuch, I, I don't, I don't think that, I mean, th those are the three judges that I think are most inclined to find a way to provide some transition tax relief. Would you agree? Yeah. And, you know, if they can, you know, haul in some of the injustice vis-a-vis -vis individuals, including Americans abroad, maybe it will serve their ideological interests. What do you think? It could, but I think the intellectual effort that would be involved, they'd probably think, what's the point? They don't need to. They can probably get where they want to go without that intellectual effort. Well, it will be fascinating. So in summary, in summary. You know, we've been sort of talking about a lot of aspects of this. Why don't we close today with just a succinct statement of alien edge classifications are suspect and therefore? Well, we're talking about nationality or country of origin. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure what your nationality and country of origin classifications are suspect. Therefore, they come with a presumption. Of equal protection problems, agreed. Yeah, they're inherently suspect, and so it's a presumption of, of violation of of fourteenth fourteenth amendment yep. equal protection. Shifting the burden on the government to to show that they have a comp that the law is narrowly tailored to serve a compelling governmental interest. All right. So that's the formula through which the whole issue of taxation of Americans abroad is run through. Then. All right. Any other thoughts, Karen? No, I mean, I think it's been a, a wide ranging discussion, but I think it's been been helpful in helping me understand exactly where where this argument is going. And yeah, clear, clearly, clearly the U.S. extraterritorial system discriminates against its own citizens for daring to live outside of the U.S. Do you think the U.S. would even recognize itself if it didn't? I don't know. Big problem, anyway. Okay, Laura, any final thoughts, summary, anything? And th thank you, by the way, for you know for the work you've done on this paper and the you know the I think the very good sort of granular analysis here. Well, hopefully, it'll make a difference one of these days. It absolutely will make a difference. The only thing we're betting on is which day. <laughs> so, Laura, we'll close on this. <clears throat> Will the day be next week, Monday, next week, Tuesday, next week, Wednesday, next week, Thursday, next week, Friday? Which day? Who knows, John? But it will make a difference. I'm, I'm not holding my breath, but I think eventually it must. Of course it will. And I appreciate the word must, Karen. Absolutely. Now, look, seriously, this is a big problem. but. At the end of the day, it will change. The only thing we're betting on is time. All right. Bringing us to the end here. This is a, a SEAT podcast going through Laura's papers. SEAT stands for SEAT Stop 
extraterritorial, extraterritorial American taxation now. Laura, is that a good idea? Absolutely, John. Karen? Of course. And on that note, we'll pick this up at the next uh, at the next paper. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, John. Thanks.